Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is mastering engineer, author, and software developer, Gabri Waddell. But first of all, Spotify is finally going public, but not the way most people anticipated. For most companies that go public, they do what's called an initial public offering or an IPO. Spotify isn't doing that, though. Spotify is using a piece of financial engineering that's called a direct public offering, a DPO. And there's quite a number of advantages to that. When you do a direct public offering, you don't need an investment bank as an underwriter. And they usually take a whole lot of money out of the public offering. So there's a financial advantage by doing the direct offering. The other thing, no new shares are issued. So as a result, the current stockholders, which are a lot of people in the company, plus the investors, their interests are not diluted at all. One of the big things for all the investors and for the owners of the company is there's no lockup period. And a lockup period basically means after you go public, you can't sell your shares for anywhere between 90 and 180 days. Now, it looks like you've made a lot of money, but it's all on paper because you can't sell it. You have to wait for that lockup period to end. Now, when you do a direct offering, that no longer applies. So that means that the day Spotify is listed, all those people are millionaires and billionaires because they can immediately sell their shares. So another way to look at this is the fact that an IPO is like a wedding where a DPO, a direct public offering, is more like eloping, where it's fast and easy, where an IPO, there's a big run-up and there's lots of marketing that happens because what they really want is a big first day. And that first day is when all the institutional investors come in and the stock gets driven up, hopefully, and there's a lot of money that's raised. And that's the big thing, raising money. Now, in the case of Spotify, you don't much care about the money because it's worth $13 billion on paper, $13 billion on paper. So what that means is they think they're going to be okay and investors want to cash out anyway. So how is this going to affect Spotify in the long run? Well, it'll only affect it negatively if that first day is bad, the stock goes down. We don't know what the stock is going to be valued at at this point, but if it goes down a lot, then that's kind of a disaster for everybody involved. However, Spotify seems to be pretty hot, so no one is anticipating that happening. So anyway, Spotify will be public, and when that happens, there's a whole new set of rules involved. Now, all of a sudden, they have to be a lot more transparent about what's going on. There's a lot of information that we don't know now that suddenly we're going to know because we have to, because in order to be a public company, you have to really tell everybody what's going on all the good and the bad. So all of a sudden we'll know a lot more about Spotify than we've known before. If you have any questions or comments, send in the questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Check out my Hitmakers Club for access to the private Mixers Facebook group, as well as the monthly deconstructed hits, mixing workshop, and Q&A webinars and for a short time, access to my core training module bonus. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, Gibson is back in the news. Yeah, they never let us down. It seems like every month there's something new. 
The big news is they're not exhibiting at NAM this year. Instead, Gibson will be at the CES show, the Consumer Electronics Show. Why is that? Well, my belief, and it's only a belief, is the fact that Gibson doesn't think that being at the NAM show will get it any new money, any new sales. But spending all of that money instead on the Consumer Electronics Show, there's a possibility that it can bump up its consumer sales. And let's face it, Gibson is trying to be more of a consumer electronics company than it is a guitar company. So it's really a shame to see this happening, but it is happening right before our eyes in 2018. I think will be a pivotal year with Gibson Guitars. Something else that happened, though, that's actually better news is the Gibson Flying V turns 60. January 7th, 1958 was when the patent was granted. And when it first was issued, it was a favorite of blues guitarists like Albert King and Lonnie Mack, but it didn't sell very well, so it was discontinued. And a quirk of fate got it reintroduced into the product line. In 1965, the Kinks were making their first American tour, and Dave Davies, the guitar player, had his guitar lost by the airline. So he needed a guitar, and he picked up a Flying V, and then they made a series of television appearances, and that television exposure led to the Flying V being reissued in 1966. However, it was only for a very short time, because it was hot and then it wasn't. So in 1970, it was discontinued once more. In 1975, they brought it out again, but this time there was a lot of European rockers that really got into it, like Michael Schenker, like Mark Bolan, like Mick Ralphs from Bad Company, and all of a sudden it was hot again, at least on that side of the pond. Then in the 80s, it became a metal mainstay, thanks to Metallica's James Hetfield and Kirk Hammett. So the Flying V has not been out of production since then. It's been a mainstay of Gibson guitars. It's probably not as good as it once used to be, but then again, most Gibson guitars are not. That being said, it's an iconic guitar, and it's one of the few that you can actually play upside down. So in other words, a left-handed player can buy a right-handed guitar, flip it upside down, and it doesn't matter. It plays the same way. It's one of the few guitars that will do that. So anyway, happy 60th birthday, Gibson Flying V. My guest today is Gabri Waddell, who's done mastering for Ministry, Lil Wayne, Rick Ross, Public Enemy, and many more at his Stonebridge Mastering Studio in Memphis, Tennessee. He's also the author of the Complete Audio Mastering Book and is the co-founder and CEO of plugin developer Soundways. Soundways has a number of next-generation plugins like the Core Production Bundle of Mixing Helpers and the revolutionary SoundCredit app for credits and song metadata. I spoke with Gabri via Skype from his studio in Memphis. Let's go back to how you got started in the music business. What's your music background like? So with me, you know, I got started really in mastering. Uh, I'd been playing with different bands around Memphis and, you know, play guitar and bass and friends of mine, you know, we'd get together and uh, at that time, you know, we're teenagers and couldn't afford mastering or mixing. So I would start to do those things myself and, you know, uh, Went to business school and wanted to try those things I was learning in business school and uh, and mastering, you know, it was just something that was always calling to me. So I, I started a mastering studio and at first out of my apartment and then moved it to the location in downtown Memphis where it uh, currently is and uh, 
Yeah. So that was sort of the path, you know, mastering records and just uh, love for audio engineering and, and getting into, uh, into that area. Did you have a mentor for mastering? Not until later on, you know, in the early days for me, you know, I was reading a lot of different books about it and anything I could get my hands on and having so many conversations, you know, going to AES and meeting people, uh, you know, you have a beer or you go to an after party with people and you learn so much from that. But the day to day, I didn't do the mentorship part, uh, part of that, that, that some people do uh, when they come up uh, through this craft. Was that because you, you got started on your own? Yeah, you know, and just the curiosity led me that way. It was just something where, uh, you know, I wanted to try new things and I, uh, you know, wasn't under the sort of um, the more strictness or the structure of, a, of an existing studio. So it sort of left me to be able to try all these different things uh, at that time. Ah, well, let's go there for a second. So what was different from your approach than the traditional approach? So, you know, for me, it's, it was always, you know, part business development, part resource creation. And that was, that was a big element to sort of set my career uh, apart from others, I think, is that, you know, a lot of people would do these mentorships. But for me, I was, uh, I was getting my hands on anything I could get my hands on, including, you know, also just having a lot of conversations with people. And then I would compile that into these resources, uh, one of the things was uh, this post called the Digital Publishing Standard for Audio Recordings. And I remember putting that on my website, and I talked to people at CSAC in France and ASCAP uh, in New York, and I put together this uh, list of suggestions about digital publishing. Well, that uh, became just an, a really popular resource at the time, and uh, just got so much traffic. And as people would uh, work through those guidelines, uh, they would contact me and I would get clients, just amazing clients sometimes uh, through those channels. So that was, that was really something. Wow, that's unusual. So did you contribute to that then? Or did you just have the, the doc on your website? Uh, I had the document right there on my website. And of course, around that time, now this is, this is, uh, I was in my early 20s, and I'm in my mid-30s now, so this is a good bit of time ago. And with Google and the search engines and uh, with the internet, things were just a bit different uh, during that time. So, uh, yeah, it was, it ended up raising my uh, my uh, uh, ranking on, on a number of search engines, of course, Google, uh, and for years, you know, with that resource and a number of others, I would just write all the time. Uh, it became the first thing under the, the organic results. It, almost anywhere you searched, from New Zealand, Australia, in Israel, India. Uh, so I would end up building out my mastering uh, client base in just in an international way uh, through those resources. You probably hit that earlier than most mastering engineers because now when I talk to even the legends, so much of their work is coming from offshore. The nature of mastering has changed. I mean, there, there's a couple, you know, the Bob Ludwigs of the world that still only do primarily label work, big, big label work, because 
you know, they're so, so in demand, but everybody else, for the most part, they get so much work from indie and offshore that's changed. The whole business has changed, but it sounds like you were there first. Yeah, I was, uh, I was really early in doing that. And, you know, of course, I was exposed to all your work during that time. I think that you're the most published author in, in our field. And, you know, it was just uh, it was a different experience to just gather all these different resources, uh, start to write resources. And, of course, I, uh, eventually that culminated into my book uh, that was published with McGraw-Hill. Uh, later on in my career. So it's it's always been a, a part of it for me. And you're exactly right. Those international audiences and the um, and the indies, that's there's a lot of business that's there. And there's a lot of sort of back and forth exchange of ideas and the um, the client relationships. It's really something else uh, and, and really key, I uh, feel. How did you get into programming? So I'd, I started that just really, really early. Um, so when I was uh, about s- seven or eight years old, we had one of those old Texas instrument computers in the 1980s that you hooked up to your television set. And none of my family wanted to do anything with it. And it had cartridges, but we didn't have any of the cartridges. So if you wanted to uh, play a video game or do anything with it, then you had to uh, you had to uh, type out the code. And we had uh, a book that I would go from. Well, that was that was the start of it, you know. So just really, really early, and I started getting into um, into uh, a, a bit of the early 3D uh, video gaming uh, uh, engine creation uh, in my teenage years. Uh, during the time of Wolfenstein and Doom, that uh, fascinated me. So I wanted to to write a first-person shooter like that and first started getting acquainted with C++ around that time. Uh, but as all my friends started going to Georgia Tech and uh, and getting into MIT, uh, I wanted to uh, – I didn't want to just start working at a company as a developer. I wanted to, to start a business and, and get a sense of for business first. So I went to business school and uh, start doing mastering, uh, knowing that I would return to it. Wow. So what was the first thing that you programmed? I'd say, you know, in those early days, I would do scripts, uh, do all, you know, little edits to to games. Uh, But one good story there, you know, I guess my first concert ever, uh, I saw Metallica at the Pyramid here in Memphis. And uh, uh, my parents wouldn't let me go. And one of my, one of my, uh, junior high school friends. So we wrote a script that would call the radio station over and over and detect a busy signal and call it back. And we, we ran it on uh, different uh, phone lines that we had at, in both of our houses. And we won those Metallica tickets and, we, and were able to go to our very first concert uh, through that. <laughs> so <laughs> You game the system. I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. how about your first audio app? So with that, uh, you know, as I was working on my book uh, on mastering, I was I was wanting to write something that would represent all the different ideas of mastering and present something that wasn't just my own way, but a menu of all the ways uh, that were out there, all the different approaches. And so I had just so many, so many conversations 
And that was the dream. So during that time, uh, I would hear these best practices and things would start to form. It's like, oh, well, for certain things, there's common ways of doing things. Uh, and if it was, uh, if it was baked into a processor, if it was baked into a, uh, a device or software, it would, it would make that process even more powerful. So that just got me really excited about those things. And, you know, I was talking to Dave Hill from Cranesong a lot during that time. And, you know, he would tell me a little something about implementation. You know, if you're doing a DSP algorithm and you're working on this part, you need to make sure that you use, you, uh, you use uh, doubles for this and for this. You know, he would, he would give me all these ideas and I would want to go and try them out. So I, so I did. And so, you know, wrote some filters at first and uh, started to get into more intense DSP and uh, the user interface stuff. And so uh, during that time, I uh, ended up doing uh, a few different plugins, but one of them in particular uh, was a, a standout. And I thought I would just release this on my website, uh, but I had a friend that encouraged me to find a publisher for the software the, the way that I did for my book. So I approached uh, Plugin Alliance, and uh, then later there was a deal with Universal Audio uh, for this plugin. Uh, it called BX Refinement, uh, oh, yeah. a refinement plugin. Yeah. And with that one, that was the first real foray into this market uh, for me. And man, was was that a successful plugin? It's cool to have a success, isn't it? Any kind of success, it's fun. Yeah, no doubt. You know, and for all the for all the failures that you have, at least some percent some percentage of things succeed. And this was one that certainly did. So how did Soundways come about then? So, you know, I licensed this plugin uh, to Plugin Alliance, and uh, then it was licensed to Universal Audio from there. And with that, it it was it was good, but it didn't make a symbol for my city of Memphis. You know, we're a historic music town. Uh, this is something where we, you know, I just feel that we really needed something where the music history was shown as something in the present and, and for the future in a, in a really powerful way. And, you know, I, I thought doing this kind of technology, I wanted to find a way to, to make a symbol like that. Uh, licensing, I didn't feel like would do it. So I, I decided to, to do this new brand, you know, raise the investment mostly from Memphis investors uh, so that, uh, you know, we can make that kind of symbol here to show that, you know, there's that creativity, uh, that led to, uh, all of the innovation with blues and soul and rock and roll that Memphis is known for, uh, in, you know, this, this amazing time period, uh, of influence, uh, wanted to show that we're able to, to channel that kind of creativity and that sort of thinking into, uh, endeavors as well, like uh, like software development and for music, just nothing more fitting than that. So that was sort of the start of it. You know, the the local uh, investor support from people like uh, the Wilson family that uh, started Holiday Inn uh, to others uh, in just a, an amazing way. Well, I have to say, Memphis is one of my favorite cities. It's often overlooked as a music city. But it shouldn't be, and also as a tourist destination, because it's quite interesting if you're a musician, have any kind of music background or interested in music. Wow, what a place. It's really awesome. 
So I would encourage anybody to go there because, you know, it's one of those things that there's no place like it. I'm sure you agree. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, you know, people come down uh, to the Delta area uh, to, you know, go to the the crossroads. You know, the they think about Robert Johnson. They think about uh, the, you know, just the blues legacies that have happened here with with B.B. King and others. And of course, you know, a lot of times when people think about Memphis, they'll think about Elvis and Sam Phillips and Sun Studio. These are places where uh, such deep origination occurred. Of course, Stax Records, the the soul uh, label, you know, people think about Motown and Stax and the contribution there to music. And, you know, it's just, it's, there's just a, a raw creativity that's here that led to influences and in genres that have affected Western music like nothing else. And that's why I think people, they, they, in a way, they take these, uh, these sort of uh, sabbaticals to Memphis or this sort of, this sort of um, journey uh, to this place to get in touch with that early energy, that energy that really led uh, to, to that innovation. Just, it's something else, and it's palpable in the air you know and if you walk down bill street it's it's present oh you can feel it there's no doubt yeah i i was shocked first time i went there it was just something that that immediately you felt and you didn't even have to go to any of the attractions i mean there's so many there's the elvis estate and then there's the gibson factory although i'm not so sure that's going to stay there stacks and sun and if you're you're recording you can go to ardent and just so much it's great so, yeah, it's very cool that you do that to support your community because uh, I don't think there's enough awareness about it. And and that's shocking to me, but that's the case. Yes, yes. I mean, with uh, Royal Studios and Uptown Funk, uh, when Mark Ronson came here to do that with Boo Mitchell and the, the Grammy win that resulted from that, just it's, you know, a lot happening here uh, today, a lot happening. Of course, it's happened in the past. Uh, yeah, incredible place. So yeah, that's that's, that's really where uh, for Soundways the story begins uh, is um, that it it's it's leveraging a local strength and a local history uh, for music that's that's inspired and influenced Western music all over the world uh, for decades now. And uh, yeah, did you have an idea for the Soundways products before you started Soundways? Yeah, no doubt. So, you know, for me, it's, I think that anything that, that can affect people's workflows, anything you can do to improve workflows is going to be one of the most powerful things you can do. Uh, when you think about the quality of, uh, of different processes, you know, there's, there's diminishing returns, especially now with uh, improvements for algorithms for all types of things from compression algorithms, limiting and in, uh, in EQ. Uh, there's, there's there's limits to those things and how much better they're gonna that they'll ever be able to get. Uh, we've really hit an amazing uh, uh, stride with that in technology today. Uh, but things you can do to uh, to affect that workflow for people and really solve problems uh, there, it that's something else. And so that's what I wanted the the Soundways products to really um, to really um, coalesce around. Again, I think we're seeing a new generation of plugins, and they're more instead of the traditional, which basically are an emulation of of analog. 
these go a step beyond and look at it from an in-the-box standpoint right from the beginning. So, for instance, low-leveler that you have, that solves a big problem that so many people have. I mean, even the A-list pros have that same problem with, do you have enough or do you have too much? It's, it's a constant battle. And there's something that's very useful that, that will let you know. Reveal is great, something I use all the time. How did that come about? I'm just kind of curious. So it came from when I, you know, when I was working and mastering every day, you know, and getting these orders from all over the world, I would see the same kinds of problems all the time. And with Reveal, there, there were different manual ways I would get people to do checking uh, for translation. And so I started baking that into different, uh, different little plugins that I would send people. And so it was something I, uh, that I really iterated on over years of, of listening and uh, client feedback. And, you know, so ended up baking that into one simple, easy to use tool uh, that shows you if there's going to be problems in a mix. And it really got to the point where, you know, somebody would send me a certain number of orders and we would uh, have a chat and I would get them set up with this and you would just you would see this night and day difference between their work before and after that talk. Usually if it was independent, you know, someone who was a little bit earlier in their career, absolutely going to be a night and day difference for the pros. It was a, a a quality control measure that was extremely valuable because you're always looking for a way to make sure you're consistently delivering quality when you're, when you're a pro. So with this, it's, um, it was something yeah, abs- just iterated on for, for years uh, and, and proven to be effective before being baked into this, um, this, this offering. Reveal does so many different things. The thing about it is every single one of them are necessary. And you, you end up doing them, and this just takes so much. It's more efficient. Let's put it like that. So, for instance, the, you, know, you have the FM algorithm, you have the, the vehicle algorithm, it's so much easier to do that, to use that than it is to go out to your car, you know, or, you know, listening on multiple speakers, for instance, so you can get around that with reveal as well. It's very cool. Is it different? Did it evolve from when you first envisioned it? Oh, no doubt. You know, it's, it was something just in those very early days, it was just more basic, you know, and, you know, I was just, um, I was just gathering information, seeing how people would interact with this. And this is before anything was released and before Soundwaves was formed, just in that more basic way. Uh, but then it, conversations would develop, like, you know, and relationships, like with um, uh, Cornelius Gould over at Omnia. Uh, they have the most common FM broadcast processor uh, in the United States. And uh, so, uh, you know, I would have chats with him and I would hear about problems that came up for them. Uh, there was one, uh, I won't mention the artist's name, but there was a, a, a really uh, well-known artist uh, that uh, had a single come out and the radio uh, broadcast processing affected it in a way that, uh, that really made the producers unhappy. <laughs> and it made the song just, you know, nothing like the energy that is, that's in the full range recording. And so that was a big problem for them and it ended up... Um, uh, being a, uh, quite a problem for them. So, uh, with this, it just bakes that, 
uh, into one simple button. Like you just you click this FM curve button in uh, in reveal, and boom. If there's going to be a problem, uh, you're going to hear it. You're going to know it right there in the studio before uh, it gets out to FM radio. And that was kind of a wish list item for them. And that was something that just evolved from conversations. And as we were developing it, you know, uh, because that relationship is there, we were able to just sort of uh, bounce uh, a frequency response over to them and chat about their filter designs and uh, make sure we were doing something that tracked it 100%. So uh, modeled uh, just uh, very exactly on uh, on what is the most common processor uh, in all the radio stations here in the U.S. So yeah, you know it's it was it's amazing how you know user feedback, uh, uh, relationships with other manufacturers, and all those things come to inform a product and make it just that much more effective and 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 get to the heart of of those real problems in the real world. Okay, tell me about SoundCredit. So with SoundCredit, uh, this is a plugin and uh, and also some some related services that really help to collect metadata in the way that the industry has dreamed about for for decades. Really, really two decades now. For the past ten years, the conversation has been more intense with the forming of DDEX which is a consortium of companies from Apple and Amazon to Pandora and Spotify and like 30 others, Universal and Warner, uh, that expressed that here's a format that we'd like to receive uh, song credits uh, in. So with with that, you know, uh, it's it, it, it takes that format and combines it with uh, the Recording Academy P&E Wings minimum recording data set and delivers a great product for uh, for indies to make sure that they're collecting information in a streamlined way, but also a, a full way. Well, of course, one of the big problems of metadata is it varies so much between services that you're using, data collection points, and between labels and what they consider important. So it'd be nice to have one standard where everybody submits the same data in the same way. And this seems to fill the bill, I would think. Yeah, definitely. Because it it hears and is a, the first and only implementation of the DDEX REN standard, which uh, all of those co- uh, companies were at the table and had their hand in developing. Uh, we have that assurance that everyone is on the same page. Everyone was able to uh, voice their uh, their interests and ideas uh, during the process, and this is. The, and it outputs in the, rent, the agreed upon REN standard, but there's also the workflow considerations. You know, with uh, with engineers, um, I remember talking with Larry Crane from Tape Op uh, a few AESs ago, and he was talking about plugins. And this was as I was forming the company, and he was saying, um, "I'm never hanging around the studio after uh, after work, you know, messing around with new plugins like." It's it's just a time thing, you know. It it just comes down to is is a piece of software or service or device going to help me work faster and better? You know, is it going to help me deliver that quality to my clients and help me do that, you know, more consistently as well? You know, and I remember having other conversations uh, like with Michael Romanowski about that pendulum swing from the creative side of the mind over to the technical side of the mind. 
And each time that swing gets less and less when it has to swing. So you, you want to build these things that, that don't impact people's workflow and their creativity when, uh, when they're collecting metadata uh, and collecting this information. So that was a big consideration for this is to make sure that it's just extremely streamlined. You know, a couple of clicks, a couple of keystrokes, and you're able to, to collect that information. One of the big problems that I've had with metadata is the fact that with record labels anyway, when they submit it, usually the person in charge of that is the lowest person on the totem pole, the last person in, sometimes an intern, and they're asked to supply this data, collect this data, which they're not even familiar with many times, and they get confused easily, especially when you have a song that has, you know, as of now, you know, eight, 10 songwriters and publishers, and they kind of freeze up and it doesn't happen. So as a result, we get incomplete or wrong, which is even worse, inaccurate metadata. So hopefully this might change things a little bit. But I, I mean, the input processing is still, you know, it's only as good as whoever inputs everything, but still maybe this will help it because if it's structured the same everywhere, it could be a big help to everyone, I would think. Yeah, definitely. And especially putting it into the hands of those people who are most inter- interested to have their credit be correct. Uh, you know, if, it's, if the guitar player is there on a session, he's checking in with it, uh, or if uh, the mixing engineer is checking themselves in, you know, they've, they've, uh, they've set a profile with this in most of the time, uh, most of the cases. So they're able to just uh, do a couple of clicks and that checks them, that checks them in, in their role into the project. Uh, so it just, it, it minimizes the possibility of there being uh, an error in human data entry because they're going from the profiles and it's also in their court. It puts the ball in their court. So if there's going to be an error in it or uh, or an omission, it's largely going to be because of that individual person. Uh, you see, they can take care of things themselves, and they're going to be much more interested to take care of it and make sure everything is right than that intern. So that that's a big part of this. Also, you know, when you get to the end of a project and the producer is trying to think back over all of the participants and the roles that different people played, it's really easy to forget. You know, we've got these brains and things just, uh, things slip out every once in a while. So things just, just, just drop out. So, uh, people make mistakes with this. It's easier to avoid that kind of mistake. Uh, just, a a casual omission error, uh, because you're collecting the information as it goes down the pipeline, from tracking to mixing, the, from mixing to mastering, and mastering uh, delivered to uh, to their client. Uh, everyone's checking in, so it's collected at the point of creation, which was part of the the big dream uh, for when this uh, this solution would be delivered. Didn't you say that it was the fastest or the most quickly adopted plugin or or music app ever? So with most manufacturers don't report their numbers, but from the numbers that we know, we are we're fair, very certain that this is the fastest adoption for a plugin that's ever occurred. I mean, in the first two weeks, we had users in over 50 countries. Uh, it's there was just just massive pent up demand because at conferences like CES, AES, NAM. 
Um, even entrepreneurship conferences like Collision, uh, people were talking about music metadata and the problem with song credits. And, you know, oh, it, once with that kind of thing happening over years and years and years, um, people wanted something they could do. And a quick aside here, um, we were doing the Grammy Studio Summit down in New Orleans. Um, I'm, I'm president of the Memphis chapter that uh, covers Arkansas, uh, Missouri, West Tennessee, uh, Mississippi, and Louisiana. And, you know, we do this event every year in New Orleans. And uh, we were going to cover metadata. And I knew it was going to be yet another year of not being able to tell people actionable steps that they could take. Uh and that was a big motivation to, to really fast track this when we had decided that we we're going to put this in the pipeline more immediately. And with that, you know, people wanted to hear that. People wanted to hear what they can do. They're re- and with this and the adoption that's occurred, it's proven that this is a practice that people are willing to take on. You know, that, that, that it is something where, uh, you know, People just, they're, they're fed up with the, with the errors and the issues with song credits, and they're ready to, ready to do this. Do you have any new products that you're working on that you can talk about? We, we better let those come out uh, as they come out. We've <laughs> got one that's also a workflow tool that's just an am- amazing thing that uh, there's nothing else, nothing else quite like it. There's nothing else. It's not just um, a different flavor of EQ or compressor or a slight tweak on something. Is something that is um, this just um, just amazing? And also, we have a, a web service that we'll be announcing uh, here at the here in 2018. That is going to it's going to be an unforgettable, a massive impact on the music industry. So we'll be we'll be making a, a really big announcement uh, very shortly. Very cool, very cool. Well, looking forward to that. Let me know when it all happens. Okay, last question, Gabri. Um, this is uh, especially appropriate for you because you went to business school. You've approached all this with a very business-like intent, I could tell, which is unusual for the music business. So what's the best piece of business advice that maybe you learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? I'd say with that, it's, you know, it's, it's, there's two things that come to mind. And that uh, first is that, there's nothing more valuable than relationships and those interactions that you have. When I was in my twenties, uh, I didn't, you know, I just kind of wrote off these conferences and events that would happen. I uh, did not really recognize the, the significance of that. So, uh, connecting to communities, uh, interacting with real people, that's, that is so key. And for business itself, I'd say just make sure you're solving a problem for people. You know, that, that can be easily missed, uh, and we get into sometimes uh, in the industry. I see a lot of uh, technical indulgences, mm-hmm. and that that's something to be avoided. You know, just n- making sure that you're solving a real a real problem for for people. To find out more about Gabri and Soundways, go to soundways.com. It's one word: soundways.com. Or you can go to stonebridgemastering.com. Stonebridge Mastering is all one word as well. Stonebridgemastering.com. 
Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or find it in iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, or Google Play. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. <laughs>